Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa Suela, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy Bowman. There is only Zool. Hi. (laughs) And Dr. Sam Morris. When somebody asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Andy feels completely justified in his fear of ghost orphans. Sam reads a Stephen King novel about children with special powers, the new one. And I have sympathy for the devil in horns. All right, guys, it is the third week of Spooktober. Uh, Tessa, pronounce it properly. Spooktober. There we go. Thank you. By the way, I had, I had no idea you were going to break out that, that bit, and I'm just proud of myself right now. You should be proud. <laughs> Pleasure working with you. Okay, so my my discussion question this week, so there are a number of movies. I Every year during Spooktober, I like to break out some new horror movies that I haven't seen before, and I like to break out some classic spooky movies that that, you know, just they bring me joy. So things like Nightmare Before Christmas is a big one for me. The Crow, I love The Crow. It is it is definitely something that I like to watch every year. Practical Magic is another one that I really enjoy. So what I wanted to ask you two is, do you have any horror movies or spooky movies, they don't have to be horror, that you like to break out every year around this time? Here's the thing about me. I'm not really one of those uh, break out a movie every year kind of people. Typically, when I watch a movie, it kind of stays watched for a few years, and I don't like rewatching it until a few years later. So, uh, no, there, there is, there is no movie that like I enjoy to a point where I would watch it multiple times, except, of course, Scott Pilgrim versus the World by Edgar Wright. But that's not a Halloween I guess movie. That's not. Yeah, I mean, you could have said Shaun of the Dead, I guess, but I, I, I could have, but I mean, that's that's not the truth. I'm just not a guy who watches movies that regularly like uh to rewatch them uh, it's kind of part of the whole thing with this podcast now community i will redo and you know what right there right there's the solution because i will rewatch the halloween episodes of community every year so i just talking i got myself to where the halloween episodes of community are wonderful great and beautiful and funny there we go yeah i don't for Halloween, I I don't really do that. I I think for Christmas I do, but we won't get into that today. There are certain Christmas movies for sure, but I know that Halloween has been more of a let me get Tessa to watch all the Halloween movies I like that she hasn't seen yet, and and vice versa. You know, we've been working our way through the the Scream movies. I want to show her the Scream movies' far inferior counterpart. I know what you did last summer. Uh, the the thing that the thing that gets most repeated pop culturally every halloween is is the playlist the music i have a i have a really good playlist a solid halloween playlist that we've been working on for the last 3 years and tessa brings up the crow two of the songs from the crow soundtrack nine inch nails's cover of dead souls uh, by joy division and uh, the cure's uh, burn are are two songs that go on that playlist they're classic so the crow always lives in our household in some form or fashion at Halloween. Real quick, I actually want to add, there. there is one more thing, and this is also the thing that people who have been into one of my movie nights where I'm drunk enough and have to sit through some kind of TV show episode that'll pull up. Uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. I will 
there are a handful of those episodes I will always pull up, particularly on YouTube. And the the shinning is probably the one that I will force everyone to watch uh, multiple times, uh, which is their parody of The Shining. The the evil crusty doll has to be the best one. It's a close one. Help help the dolls trying to kill me and the toaster's been laughing at me. Ew, dog water. <laughs> no no beer and no TV make Homer go something something crazy. Yeah. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> there's also the there's also the the ripoff of Francis Ford Coppola's uh Dracula when um <laughs> they go down the super fun happy slide in his mansion. But we're but the good children yeah, yeah. Uh, so I highly recommend Nightmare on Elm Street, or uh, not Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Treehouse of Horror. <laughs> there we go. Night Nightmare on the Treehouse of Horror, uh, which is gotcha. also a great one where Willie Willie is killed by a PTA meeting by accident, and he comes back to kill the children. Uh, one more, the butterfly effect episode, <laughs> the one where it rains donuts. Yeah, the t- <laughs> this is uh, What's a donut? Oh, this is the worst yeah. world ever. And then you. Oh, look, it's raining outside. <laughs> so so for Andy, it's TV, Halloween themed TV episodes. And for Sam, possibly also Halloween TV themed episodes. But but also but also music. And and there's no monster mash here. Don't don't bring that. Is there a chance, Sam, that our subscribers to the Pop Culturist Post might get a sneak peek of this playlist in one of their spooktober entries perhaps they might now this this playlist is now complete with alice cooper's seminal track the ballad of dwight fry so good stuff so listeners if you haven't signed up for the pop culturist post you may want to do that during the month of spooktober you may get a chance to look at sam's playlist what what month is it spooktober and one more thing really quick, this, the clip, the entire song of Werewolf Bar Mitzvah from 30 Rock is something that I do a whole lot because it's one of the funniest things. Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves is one of the best lines ever written. All right. Well, we just got a lot of insight into what the month of October looks like for the two of you. It's a comedy. So it, it's a comedy. It's comedy horror. All right, Andy. Tell us what you watched this week for Spooktober. Thank you again for pronouncing it properly. I watched 2007's The Orphanage, a Guillermo del Toro uh, produced movie, not directed, produced. And this is one of the first movies he really kind of produced and used his clout to really get out there. It is a Spanish language movie directed by J.A. Bayona. Now, People might remember J.A. Bayona from the very panned, but also in some parts very good Jurassic World sequel, Fallen Kingdom. You can see his horror chops in the opening sequence of that, which I still, which I will always put as one of the top horror sequences I've ever seen. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's the T-Rex. It's a strobing light effect. It's terrifying. He also did A Monster Calls, which I haven't seen yet, but I've heard very, very, very good things about. But we're going to be talking about his movie, The Orphanage, which is terrifying in all the right ways. The Orphanage is a movie about an orphanage. Are you going to elaborate on that? Or or is that just your entire entry that's for... It. That's, that's it. it. That's all yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you get to it's know. A, it's a movie about the title and... Uh, 
So it is Spanish language, and I, I, you know, that shouldn't scare anyone away. I really, truly, it shouldn't. It is on uh, Netflix right now, I believe. This movie is about a woman who was once an orphan. She, she and her husband buy the orphanage where she was, you know, and she wants to invite children in. And apparently after she left, but before she bought it, you know, there's like 20 years or whatever in there. Something happened in the orphanage and uh, children died, but her son has a few imaginary friends and eventually her son goes missing. And this is about the kind of potential haunting that ensues, right? You've, you've got these very, very creepy ghost stories. You've got a little boy who has a sack over his head, who looks kind of like the, the boy from trick or treat. If anyone has seen that movie, that is a, beautiful horror anthology movie. It's a creepy horror movie about a mother trying to find her son. I have a question for you. You wrote, let's see, let me see if I can do my time right. Did you write it two weeks ago? Is that how we time travel when doing this this podcast? Yes, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, you wrote, it really just feels like a couple days ago for me, a article for the pop culturist about Halloween movies, horror movies uh, that don't involve jump scares and gore. Right. Right. So is this a movie that folks who don't like jump scares and gore could watch? Absolutely. Now there, there is, there is one jump scare and potentially two, depending on how jumpy you are. And uh, I, I'm actually going to be writing a sequel list because this movie really inspired me to do that. So I want to go ahead and get this out, out there. My wife, my my beautiful, wonderful wife, Sarah, does not like horror movies. She, as she recently put it, she is Sarah, not Scara. <laughs> <laughs> and she kept telling me that this is her favorite horror movie. Oh, so this is a Sarah recommendation. This is a Sarah Ooh. recommendation. And I, I, I have to say, there is zero, I'd say 0.5 gore in this movie. I, I'd, I'd rank that on, on the gore factor. You will find gorier things watching Die Hard. This movie is very, it's, it's listed as a drama horror and it is very heavy on the drama, but never in a way that makes you feel like you're not watching a horror movie. So where would you say that line is between drama and horror here? It is, it is very, very difficult to describe that without really talking about uh, spoiler parts of the movie. I will say this movie made me think a lot about the baggage I bring to a movie believing it to be a horror movie, right? There's, there, there's a, a, a certain sense when you know a movie is a horror movie where you start screaming like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't you know you're in a horror movie? And the characters within this world never really act like they're in a horror movie. And... If you if you if you know if you come in with the baggage of like knowing like you're in a horror movie like stop don't do that right can't you hear the musical stings don't you know this is ominous you're you, you know you're going to get upset but the characters act very rationally her son having these imaginary friends is only sinister because of the baggage you bring in knowing this is a horror movie so if I want to take a break from the year-long horror movie that is 2020, 
that of course has its own set of irrational expectations, just like every other horror movie. I could watch this and get a break. Yes. Uh, People act rationally. That sounds great to me. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that they act rationally, but they, they don't act stupidly, right? You're, you're never upset at them for being stupid because of the way that this movie is framed, right? There, there are the sinister musical stings. There's the, the ominous undertone, and I really can't get into more without talking spoilers, but it's, it's cool. This movie is incredibly intense, but there are, there are no jump scares. And the only jump scare that, that really happens happens almost entirely randomly and just out of the context of the entire movie. And that, and that, and that I, I like that. And it also has one of the most intense games of red light, green light I have ever seen. That's terrifying, actually, because Red Light Green Light is a stressful game for me. It's it's a stre- It was a stressful <laughs> watch. I I was on the edge of my seat, going ah, ah, ah. like I don't know how to scream in Spanish, but uh, oh. you would learn for this movie. I, I I I would I would learn from this movie. Is this set in Spain? Yes, yes, and th- and that and that's like okay. another thing, kind of to talk about here is you forget very quickly that it's a Spanish language movie because it sounds more Italian. So I almost started expecting more of the, like the Giallo influence, but no, this is Pan's Labyrinth is a lot more jump scary than this, right? If you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, you can watch the orphanage. You might not believe me because man, does J.A. Bayona build up the tension, but this is a very good movie. I, I recommend it. I, I was going to say one last question before, before you turn it over to Sam. Did Guillermo del Toro write this? Del Toro did not write this. Um, you, okay. you, can, you can feel his influence. And if you've ever, ever heard Del Toro talk, he can't go like three sentences without calling himself fat and degrading himself in some way. And there's very clearly a, an insert character for him here. There, there, there's a segment of the movie that just feels like Del Toro came up with it. And he's cackling with glee over just having his, you know, his... um insert character in this situation. I truly love this movie. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. This is, if you can get through Get Out, you can get through this. Creepy children though. Creepy, creepy children. <laughs> Samothy, what did you experience this week? <laughs> that, was the, that was the third take of this, by the way. And so we're, we're here where we are now. So what I experienced this week was Stephen King's 2019 novel, Sam Plays by the Rules. Uh, This book is approximately 56 weeks old, so it's just over a year. It's qualifying it to be a monkey. Stephen King's 2019 novel, The Institute. Okay, Stephen King, big writer. Lots of books, tons and tons and tons of books. What else have you read by him? With one exception, all of them. With one exception, hmm. Hold on. I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to guess this exception. Go on. Sell. I feel like we should put like carnival music here. <laughs> okay, sell? Nope, I read that. You read Sell, okay? Yep. I I know for a fact you've read the Dark Tower series. Yep. I know for a fact you've read The Shinning. Yes. Surely you've read the the short story collection that has the Langoliers in it. Uh for past midnight? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Langoliers wait, is was, that different seasons? Langoliers was really good. Um, yeah. I'm going, Either way, I read that one too. Well, I, 
I'm thinking of the made-for-TV movie that terrified me as a child. That had, um, oh gosh, uh, Dean uh, Stockwell in it. Yeah. Uh, I know which one you hadn't read. I bet you haven't read the Tommyknockers. Oh no, I've read that. I read that in high school. All right, all right. I read that on the floor of the choir room. All right. Last guess is going to be, and people who understand what movie this is understand why this is a terrible, terrible guess. Finders Keepers. No, I no, I read that. It's the second in the in a, the trilogy. Uh, oh, those were so good too. Yeah. Maybe wait. Maybe you didn't read the Colorado Kid. No, nope, I read that. Okay. What what is the mystery Stephen King novel that you haven't read? Well, it's his most recent release, If It Bleeds. Uh, yeah. Uh, about two years ago, I I basically removed every Stephen King novel that was still remaining off of my to-do list off of the to-do list it was a big deal i finished i was done and he had some gall to keep releasing books after that stephen king you cute adorable corgi loving man molly the thing of evil i I was gonna say if you haven't seen stephen king's molly the thing of evil just give yourself a treat go on twitter go look at go look at his dog right and and remember we are not talking about disgraced congressman stephen king either no, is he a published author? He might be. He, mm. you, 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 you know how those uh, disgraced congressmen love to. His his writing is horrific in a different way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay, so okay, let's right. let's get so, back on. What is the institute? So, well, okay, hold on, hold on. You ask me that in a second. Okay. So I growing up in the eighties, Stephen King. That's really when he became like the pop culture juggernaut. You know, in the 70s, his reputation built. And by the mid eight, mid to late 80s, he was really there. That's when you could turn on the TV and see advertisements for the Stephen King Book Club. The, the, the thing that if you sent the check-in by mail, there may or may not have been cash on delivery. I don't remember. I was a kid. You know, every month you'd receive a new chilling tale from the master of horror. You know, this is really where the reputation got built. And so uh, it was the summer of 1992 in a small town... At, I was in with Maine? my grandparents for the summer. No, it was not in Maine. It was in the South, sad to say, but went to the local library. Small town local library doesn't have a lot, but what they did have was the newest release by Stephen King. And I was like, you know, commercials have worked. I want to find out what the deal is. Nobody's watching. I'm going to check this book out. Uh, it, and it was summer of 92. So his new book at that time was Needful Things. That was the first Stephen King book that I read. It's good. I like it, but it has so much Castle Rock mythos in it that just, I don't know, I just missed tons of illusions in it. You know, and as Andy, as you said earlier, I've read all the Dark Tower books. Approximately all but the last one were good. It and The Stand have always been my favorites. I've reread those multiple times. You know, I could talk lots about it. I When we did our Cosmic Horror episode, you might remember that I referenced his nonfiction book, his first nonfiction book, Dance Macabre. That's a really great read as is his other nonfiction book on writing. There's a lot good to say about Stephen King and the things that he has written. Real real quick, uh, since you said The Stand's your favorite, maybe we can do a, uh, a some kind of podcast series for the pop culturist on the uh, CBS All Access show. You know, I think we need to watch the Gary Sinise, Rob Lowe spectacular before we do that. But otherwise, Laura Stangia Como as well? I mean... I don't know. There's a pretty strong thing for this CBS All Access show to lead or live up to. It's got Marilyn Manson in it, so... So it won't be as good. It'll be better. 
All right. Is he playing flag? He's playing unknown. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård is playing flag. Okay, maybe he's doing trash can man. Possibly. You, you know what? That would make sense. Um, but it, it would. But uh, I mean, the cast already looks pretty good. You got James Marsden, Greg Kinnear, Whoopi Goldberg, Owen Teague, Ezra Miller. Oh, skipping that. Nat Wolf. You've got Nat Wolf. I don't know. Gary Sinise. Uh, Gary Sinise plays a character who is very much unlike his his book counterpart, Stu Redmond. Mm. But it's one of those things that really works. It's really good. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to cast... Is Marsden playing Stu Redmond? Yes, Marsden is playing Stu. He is also not a large, hairy Texas man. Well, you know what? That's okay. I think there are... I mean, if, if there's one reference to his back hair, there has to be like a dozen in the book. Well, I, I mean, I, I have no idea. I've never read the book. I've never even touched the stand. The only thing book-related stand that I've touched is the book stand, which is one of those little uh, spindly things at the library with all the paperbacks. Fun fact, so since we can just cut whatever we want because yeah. I'm editing this. Oh, I, um, I hope so, all this gets cut. <laughs> so, so far off topic. Well, so the stand, you know, when he wrote it, they wouldn't publish it. Uh, in its original form, he abridged it. And so that that was out there for years. And so one of the really cool things when they started running the Stephen King um, Book of the Month Club on the TV commercials, for the first time ever, the stand uncut. And, you know, decades ago at this point, I always thought it would be a cool academic project to go through and, like, document the cuts. You know, what got cut out and what are the effects of that? Because I, uh, at McKay, I, I years ago I finally found a copy of the abridged version. I haven't read it, but I have it. So it's it's just interesting that he had written several big novels at that point. You know, in terms of like popularity, but then when he turned in this giant novel, they were like, no, it's basically like the equivalent of Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, going on radio, except they succeeded. <laughs> Okay, okay. It's not a bad aside. I mean, you know, for things we're going to cut, that's actually not bad. I, mean, I think I, that's interesting. I don't, I, don't care, I don't care if we do cut it. I, I really don't because I love, uh, I love when podcasts go off on massive tangents that make me angry. <laughs> anyway. I don't, I don't have no idea what you're thinking. I can't even tell. Samothy. Yes. What is the Institute? All right. So, so the Institute begins with a man named Tim Jameson. Okay. That is On that is an airplane. I know. And Tim Jameson on an airplane bound for New York out of Florida. And the flight attendant comes in and says, we need somebody to take a voucher to catch the next plane. And that's where the horror begins. Actually, it's not. I mean, that's only real life. In this book, Tim Jameson stands up and says, you know, something's telling me to just take that and I'll just hitchhike my way up to New York. It turns out he is a disgraced Florida cop. It, there's a really weird turn on uh, police violence very early on in this novel. Stephen King does a weird thing. It's not important to the plot really at all. It's really strange. Anyway, so he begins hitchhiking his way up the coast and stops in coastal South Carolina, right next to the town of Hardyville, South Carolina, and... While he's there, he sees an ad for a job, uh, a job called a night knocker. Do you know what a night knocker is, Andy? I have it. Okay. So a night knocker 
is someone who is paid professionally. Now, now this is a professional job. This is taken very seriously. A night knocker is someone who goes around the hotel rooms <laughs> at night to make sure that the uh, the door knockers are in tip top shape. As, as some people might know, well, why do we need a night knocker? And the reality is, the reason why we need a night knocker is because what if, what what if, no, hold on, what if the fire alarm's gone, right? Or the fire alarm is dead. You need a night knocker to make sure that those door knockers are all accurate. That is what a night knocker is. This has been an episode of Andy's Misconceived Preconceptions. Thank you for joining us. Tessa, do you know what a night knocker is? I do not. So a night knocker is uh, something that was common in smaller towns, especially smaller towns, years ago, where a person nominally under the employ of the police department will take a stroll down Main Street, knock, you know, knock on the door, test the door handle, see who's out, who should be there, see who's not, make sure all the doors are secured. We'll walk to one end of town, walk back check all the doors, and back and forth all night long. He is the human security system. And so, I was so close. <laughs> I, you really were. So, so Tim Jameson takes this job and scene. That's the end of the first part. And we pick up with young Luke Ellis, a boy from Minnesota who goes to the Broderick School for Exceptional Children. Now, when you hear that, I don't know, what's the deal? He's actually just super smart. There is no deal. Just super smart. So smart that he is about to take the SAT to get into, well, actually, he's already been accepted. It's just a formality because we can't let anybody into college without standardized testing. He's going to go to MIT and Emerson at the same time. And and so, like, this kid's going places. Hold on. And we see him. Hold on. I think Stephen King stole my... Uh... My life story. I need to uh, go talk to my lawyer. All right. Well, okay. Let me see if this checks out. So, so the night, so where we pick up, they, they celebrate, he and his parents go to celebrate at a pizza place and they talk about something that just kind of frustrates him a little bit. And as he's frustrated, we notice the pizza, the empty pizza pan just kind of starts rattling a little bit. Andy, are, do you have any, any telekinetic powers? I've seen Firestarter by with Drew Barrymore. I know not to answer this question. That well, that's pyrokinesis. I'm just talking about telekinesis. Visual gags are great for podcasts. Yeah, they really are. Oh, as you can see, I am making the microphone go up and down without touching it. Clearly, not holding my hand off camera. <laughs> This, this really doesn't work as anything but a visual gag, does it? Um, so anyway, it doesn't even work uh, as that. <laughs> well, it does, just not the way you want it to. Uh, so uh, he goes to bed that night, and a black ops team comes in, murders his parents, and sweeps him away. And he wakes up in the institute. The Twilight. That was zone? a lot that you just glossed over. That was, a, yeah, that was like that was the. I've given you less than twenty percent. Right now, that's that's just the beginning, and I'm not even going to go any further. I mean, uh, Stephen King's novels, uh, the two or three I've read, they 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 have layers like onions, and they go they go places from wherever <laughs> they start. Uh, they yeah. much like this podcast episode and wandering around. You never know really where they're going to turn into. Tom, this episode's going to be 45 to 50 minutes when it's over. 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. Well, I have no idea what's going to get cut and what's not. Right. So, uh, basically, uh, against Stephen King's other prolific writings, uh, you know, I know that there's been a lot of complaints about his recent stuff not being up to snuff. How how about the Institute? How how does this stack up? Uh, hold on. I I was I, you know I was stupidly unprepared for that question. I want to give you something good that he did recently. Oh yeah, that was pretty good. Um, the outsider. Yeah, yeah. So I'm one of those people who I, I I don't know. I think that Stephen King Stephen King has built up a lot of goodwill with me. He spent some of it recently, but uh, that has nothing to do with his writing. He gets a lot of the benefit of a doubt from me. Particularly, I mean, the Mr. Mercedes trilogy, the Bill Hodges trilogy was really good. Um, that's been recent. This, the book that he wrote with his uh, son, Owen, uh, Sleeping Beauties, was really good. But he writes so much. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. And I, don't, I think all of his later stuff really falls into that category. I don't know that we're ever going to get just this great, great epic like The Stand ever again. But what I will say about the Institute is it is certainly not my favorite. It I explained to you kind of the setup. You know that Luke Ellis and Tim Jameson are going to hook up in at some point in the story, that their their stories will meet. You just know it. So that's not foreshadowing. I'm pretty sure it's not intended to be foreshadowing. I'm pretty sure he's telling us. But I didn't I didn't like that. It it takes a it takes it takes a while. We stay with Luke Ellis. He is the main character of the story. And having having Tim as a frame isn't great. As you can tell from listening to the description of the novel, uh, we have old elements of Stephen King stories. We have the kids with special powers, right? You mentioned Firestarter. Uh, you know, this is not, you know, kids can do stuff with their minds in all sorts of Stephen King novels. This is not. Oh, me. I actually uh, forgot that Firestarter is a Stephen King novel. I, I legitimately <laughs> did. You just made the perfect reference without realizing it. Sorry, sorry. I It blew my mind. I was like, man, that was smart of me. No, no, it wasn't. I just... <laughs> <laughs> but there's also, uh, I, without telling you more about it, and it becomes clear very, very quickly, although you don't know the ins and outs of it, There, this is one of those big global conspiracy things. This is a, this is a big, big story, you know, not unlike, not unlike The Stand, frankly, or, or Under the Dome. Uh, so, so there are two things that he's done in the past, and he's put them together. It doesn't. It's fine. There's a really cool connection to a very old, uh, early Stephen King novel that I really thought was cool. He does not make the connection. This is one of those things where if you've done the work and you've read the Stephen King novels, you're like, "That's neat. I like it." But if not, you don't notice it, and it's fine. I'm glad I read it. I'm going to keep reading his books. It's not going to change my mind, but no, this one's not going to go on a top 10 list. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, and is that your recommendation? If you read Stephen King and you want something not on his top 10 list, well, yeah. If you're a completionist like Sam. Yeah. If you're a completionist, I mean, it's certainly not, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking, I don't even remember the bizarre bad dreams or revival. So yeah, it's probably not the not my least favorite thing he's written over the past decade. As as Tessa pointed out, The Outsider, the show, what we've seen of it so far on HBO was good. I really liked the book. In the last ten years, I guess I would recommend several other books before I would recommend this one by Stephen King. But it was okay. Okay, cool. I'm excited to see what comes next. Awesome. But in the meantime, 
let's let's switch from the king of horror to as I referred to him earlier in a past episode, the crown prince of horror, Tessa. Who is Joe Hill? So if you have listened to uh, any of our other episodes where we talk about Joe Hill, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. So I we are talking a, a dynasty of horror here. Sometimes I like to imagine that late at night, Stephen King, you know, came to tuck his, his kids into beds, particularly particularly Joe Hill, and would say pull out, you know, a copy of Edgar Allan Poe or a copy of Lovecraft or some other cosmic horror classic and would read them to his children before they fell asleep. Because the only that's the only way that I can imagine that someone like Joe Hill exists. He writes horror. I actually, from what I, I've read both Stephen King and some of Joe Hill's work, and not as many Stephen King novels as Sam, but I have read some Stephen King. I actually kind of think I prefer Joe Hill's horror. I I think that he writes it in a way that's a lot more updated and a lot more interesting in some ways. I definitely think that Heart-Shaped Box, which was his first novel, which came before the one that I'm talking about today, I believe that Heart-Shaped Box is better than Carrie was. Carrie was, of course, Stephen King's first novel. So that that's something to kind of keep in mind if you're unfamiliar with who Joe Hill is. He also wrote Lock and Key, which we talked about. Sam talked about the Netflix adaptation a couple of episodes ago. 100% agree about the 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 Carrie heart-shaped box thing. Joe Hill came out of the gate strong. By the way, I mentioned that Stephen King's written a novel with Owen King, Sleeping Beauties, but he has also written a novella called In the Tall Grass with Joe Hill. I believe that's one of two collaborations they've done. Uh, that became a film on Netflix last year. Have yet to watch it. But they have collaborated as well. Well, and doesn't he make references to Stephen King's shared universe in some of his books too? Yes. Without doing any research and having a very faulty memory, I believe Nosferatu and Dr. Sleep are connected. I want to go ahead and uh, put in another episode of Andy's Preconceived Misconceptions about Heart-Shaped Box. On this episode of Andy's Preconceived Misconceptions. So, Heart-Shaped Box got a certain level of publicity in early 2007 when it came out. Well, during... God, this is so stupid. Okay, uh, basically, <laughs> I, 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 I went on a, a field trip in uh, March of 2007, and we went to a, a mall. I'm just kind of walking by, and we walked by a Borders bookstore. And one of my friends told me, oh, yeah, that book is written by Stephen King's son. Now, I looked to it, and I saw that there was a book being advertised. That book that was being advertised is called, I'm really, really sad to, to say it, like I, I really, really thought that this was the case, The Secret. I thought Stephen King's son <laughs> wrote The Secret, and I thought that for a couple years. <laughs> oh, This has been another episode of Andy's Preconceived Misconceptions. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Tessa. What is the premise of Horns? Well, now I want to say that it's like a self-help book that was written by Joe Hill. But, but it kind of is. It, I mean, so? kind of is. So Horns is the novel that I am discussing. It's his second novel. It's the one after Heart-Shaped Box. It was published in 2010. There was actually a film version with Daniel Radcliffe um, that came out in 2013. I have not seen it. I actually am definitely looking forward to seeing it after reading this novel. It won the Bram Stoker Award that year. 
So the best way I can describe the premise of Horns is a very, very simple premise. And the premise immediate, like in the first couple of sentences of the book, you have what the premise of the book is. Ignatius Parrish, who is the main character of this book, he is commonly known as Ig, wakes up one morning and finds to his dismay that he has grown a pair of horns on his head. And they're like uh, ram's horns. Is that right? Like the goat horns anyway uh, they curl back over his head and so he is obviously very dismayed he thinks maybe that he has gone insane and that he is seeing you know something that not everybody else can see no one else can really seem to see his horns but they do start acting very strangely around him for example his roommate uh, glenna who he is sleeping with at at the time she's the first person that he talks to after making this discovery and she starts to tell him some very dark secrets about herself and saying some of the impulses that she has in relationship to him and to other people. Um, And she also starts to like binge eat these donuts in a really gross way in front of him. And he thinks maybe this is like a fluke or maybe he's hallucinating things. So he goes to the doctor's office and these, these conversations start happening with people all around him. People, whenever that he is around them and whenever they are looking at him, sort of fall into a trance and start telling him their deepest, darkest impulses. And and they're, they're pretty messed up, these impulses. And he also discovers that if he touches someone else, he knows things about them that he couldn't know otherwise. So he sees some of the worst things that they've ever done uh, from their perspective. So he sees, you know, some of the worst thoughts that they have about um, there's a woman who like wants to abandon her child. There are people who want to murder other people. There are people who have murdered other people. And he he's just learning all this messed up information about them. So this is the premise of the book is that he is sort of wandering through this town trying to figure out what is happening to him. The other thing that's happening in this book is that he... The people in the town dislike him, even though they're now reacting to him in this odd way, because his longtime high school sweetheart was found raped and murdered on the edge of town about, I think it says six months beforehand, before the beginning of the novel. And even though he was not tied to it in any way, he got off, people are pretty much convinced that he did it. And he lives in this small town and everybody hates him, basically. And so there's sort of this this story under the story where he's very depressed and he is hearing about how all these people want to hurt him, too. Um, because, it, you know, he's obviously part of some of these darker impulses. So that's that's the basic premise of Horns. There's a lot going on here. Um, I really liked the way that this book was organized. There's 50 chapters in this book, and it's divided into five sections of 10 chapters apiece. So, and they all have really cool titles. So like the first the first section, which I honestly think is the best, most well-written section of the book, is called Hell. The second section is called Cherry. The third is Fire Sermon. The fourth is The Fixer. And the fifth is The Gospel According to Mick and Keith, which is, of course, a reference to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And this is, uh, there's a lot about music in this book. Ig is a big music fan. So there's a lot about the Beatles. There's a lot about the Rolling Stones. There's a lot of uh, references to jazz and rock in this particular book. But yeah, I mean, each one of these sections works well, even on its own. Like I would have read any one of these sections as a short story or a short novella, but they all work together to 
form this really interesting story. There is a really big twist at the end of the first section that sort of informs the rest of the book. So the other four sections are sort of these flashbacks that are explaining what happens at the end of the first section. And why is this a perfect novel for Spooktober? I'm not doing the bit. You're not saying it right. If I have to say it right, you have to say it right. Yeah, Sam, you do have to say it right. Nope, that's not it. It's the perfect novel for Spooktober because it's actually really good horror. These characters are really interesting, especially Ig, who is a good person. Like Ig, as you get to know him through the novel, he is actually one of the best people in the novel who has been stuck in this horrific situation. And there's a lot of contrast between Ig, who has literally taken the appearance of the devil, right? He has these horns. He has these powers that we signify with the devil. At one point, snakes start following him around. Um, and all of these different things, but he's, and he's hearing all these terrible impulses from people, but he's horrified by them because he actually does not think that people should act this way. And it's sort of about how, what happens when, how, how is the social contract upheld amongst different people? And what happens when people just start saying anything that comes into their mind? So there's a lot of that. There's a lot to do with Marin's murder as well. There's a lot about Marin herself in the flashbacks. The actual timeline of the book only takes about 48 hours, but there's a lot of extended flashbacks back into their childhood, back into their high school years. So there's a lot about that as well. I would also say part of this, the horror of this comes from the religious references as well. There's a lot, obviously, about the devil, a lot of religious imagery, the devil here is definitely presented as more of an anti-hero than a villain. The idea is is that the true horror actually comes from people who say that they follow God and that the people who are more have more in common with the devil are rebelling against some of those authoritarian things. There's a lot of misogyny in here as well, or anti-misogyny, I should say. So I, I would highly recommend this just because it's such a well-paced novel. I literally read it in two afternoons because it was so interesting and so unexpected, but still also just not predictable. Predictable is the wrong word. Just so satisfying at the end because it's not like you knew what was going to happen, but like you were like, yes, this is what how it should end. It sounds like in terms of recommendation, you're saying if somebody is looking for a book to read during this month, whatever you call it, that perhaps Horns is a better choice than, I don't know, The Institute? I would definitely say that based on your on your recommendation. The last thing I will say, just because I thought it was cool, there's a lot about Morse code in this book. Like some of the characters communicate via Morse code. On the back and front cover of this book, there is a message in Morse code, which translated is, pleased to meet you, hope you guessed my name, which is, of course, the lyrics from Sympathy for the Devil. So there's just all sorts of references like that. So if that's something you enjoy, this is the book for you. Sympathy for the Devil. Is that a song that's used? Uh, and is, is that a song that's used in a lot of movies where it's really obvious? I mean, the whole point of this is that it's obvious, though. Like, like, and nobody does anything to him, which I think is great. Like, people just, like, tell him their worst things. And then, like, as soon as he's gone, they forget about him. Last thing I want to say, because in addition to being a Stephen King completist, I'm also, predictably, a Joe Hill completist. And if anybody out there has read The Fireman and knows why... I should like it better than I do, which is not much. Please tell me. I love Joe Hill. Not a fan of the fireman. Tell me why I'm wrong. Please. 
So we're going to go ahead and wrap up this very long and rambly episode. So next week, we are finishing Spooktober. Andy will discover new colors with Nick Cage. Sam finds a new video gaming nemesis in Resident Evil. And I wonder why people keep moving into murder houses by watching American Hor- the first season of American Horror Story. Where can you find us, Andy? You can find me online on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hebrews Paleo. Sam. Nice DJ voice. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, the monkeys you've crossed off your own lists, the monkeys that you'd like to hear us talk about in future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. I personally would like to hear from you all about the movies that you watch every October. I would like to put some on my own list, or the TV shows, if you're more like Andy and Sam. I want some, I want some more spooky content. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, at Monkey Backlog. And of course, you can also find us on the Pop Culturist website, Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please do so. Please, please, please. Get that monkey off your back. This was a pop culture. Uh-